This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast providing thoughtful discussions of all sorts of media. And this time we're talking about the live music experience. Is this still a thing? Can it and should it be replicated through technology? This is Mark Linsenmeyer, singer-songwriter, host of the Nakedly Examined Music Podcast, who seldom leaves the house. This is Erica Spires. I'm in New York City, and I like to dabble with music here and there. I'm Brian Hurt, and what I utterly lack in musical talent, I make up for in opinions. I am Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire. I am a drummer, which arguably is not a musician, but I try to be one every week on my Gig Gab podcast. Yay, welcome, Dave. A couple things as we get going, Mark. Just want to tell the other two folks, I- I'm not totally well today, and if I disappear, just keep on trucking on this podcast. Oh, that no. might happen. I was on stage with a guy that was really sick a week ago, but he made it through the show, and, and then immediately after the show ended, he raced to the men's room and was there for about 20 minutes. Well, speaking of being sick and live music, so Fleetwood Mac came to Lincoln, Nebraska, where I had lived until just recently for years and years. Mick Fleetwood was totally sick. And he got through about half of the set, and I guess he was like going back and throwing up between songs. And then finally, he just couldn't do it anymore. So the drum tech came out and just like kept going for him. It just must have been the dream come true. And they got through a couple more songs. They hit their contractual limit of, well, now it's actually a concert. And then they just left. I got to say, I think if that drummer had just kept going, it would have been just an awesome night, especially for him. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's always fun to see what happens when somebody gets sick. Then again, I guess I haven't had the opportunity to like be the one who's sick myself and have to leave halfway through. But that's part of what I guess what we're going to talk about today. That's the live experience, right? Where else can you have the experience of something crazy happens and then we all just have to figure out what to do? That's my favorite part about playing live is that you hit the stage and even though you might be well prepared or you might not be, you don't know what's going to happen. Anything can go wrong and often you have to solve problems, especially if they're musical problems, without using language to communicate. And that's actually really fun. Looking at each other and trying to, okay, like, how do we get out of this train wreck? Who's the leader now? You know, right becomes a consensus. It is not an absolute, right? You can discuss afterwards who was wrong and who was right. And that's fine and maybe helpful and maybe not. But in the moment, (laughs) it doesn't actually matter. It's, okay, who is most confident and who can we follow right now? That person now is defining what right is for the future. Have you had that happen for yourself? Because, I mean, as the drummer, you're kind of the person. We all have to, like, listen to the drummer. I've gotten lost, for sure. I've been the cause and sometimes even the solution of train wrecks. But, yeah, no, things happen, right? I mean, especially if you're playing music that's challenging or or sometimes even if you're not. You you know, you just, like, (laughs) if you make a mistake in the form or, I mean, just get lost for any reason. There can be a lot of distracting things to happen live. And so sometimes it's like, you know, in fact... I was doing this musical called uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is about a rock band. So the band's on stage. There is no fourth wall. Like it's a band playing in a club and the audience is actually the audience. We had done it in December and then again in January. And then we didn't do it again until August. But we all ended those runs fairly confident. That's sort of dangerous because, you know, when you got six months off, (laughs) you forget things. And... There was one point in one tune where I just sort of muscle memory incorrectly started taking Mm -hmm. me into like a section that went double time. 
And the guitar player instantly looked at me like, not yet. You know, it's like, oh, right. Got it. Okay. Yep. It's a team effort for sure. <laughs> so from the audience perspective, then it sounds like, you know, there's a certain thrill vertigo to actually performing live. And insofar as you're a musician and empathizing with the other musicians, then that would, as an audience member, make you more excited to see a live show than something recorded that you know is going to be smooth. But for the normal audience member, what is the advantage? I can tell you that I don't get out that much, as I said, to live shows. They're very expensive. It's a pain in the ass. I might not be in the mood to listen to, even if it's my favorite thing. You know, you got to be in the mood to hear that for an hour, for two hours, to sit through two or three opening bands. There's trade-offs to the thrill of being there in the moment and witnessing what's going on that is irrepeatable. I don't think it's a binary distinction that musicians enjoy seeing and rooting for the other musicians to succeed and non-musicians don't. Like a lot of shows that I go to, everybody is there at some level to experience that. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. I'm a drummer. You know, I'm a huge Rush fan. And their music is very technical. And I would say most people there are going to see if they can pull it off every night and to be impressed by them able to pull it off, but also to notice like, oh yeah, they had that little train wreck. Like, I wouldn't say it's just musicians. Certainly there are some people that go to a show and aren't there looking for that, would never notice it, even if there was a huge train wreck. Maybe they're only there for the party, but I think that's one of the big elements of attraction to live music. You know, people always talk about they go to NASCAR events hoping to see a wreck. And I don't really view music the same way. I, I think there is a tension in knowing that it could happen, but there's also equally an opportunity for maybe a transcendent moment in a live show that you're just not going to get with a studio recorded or even a, a live show that's been recorded, but it's already on an album now. And it's going to sound the same way every time I hear it. And so to get that artist or to get that band doing something in a way that I've never quite heard it before, the energy of the people performing, the energy in the room. It's just, I think any listener who's been to a live event knows it's just straight up different from hearing something recorded. As a non-performer, I'm not usually the one on stage, so I can't relate the way the three of you can. I also have a little tension in myself when I'm attending, knowing that I could actually ruin it myself. You know, people talk about like they don't like to stand at the edge of like a tall building because like, they know they might just throw themselves off just Knowing that they can makes them nervous. Like, I know I can just get up and start screaming during a play and ruin it. <laughs> and like, I don't think I'm going to. Erica, I sure hope I don't. I have the same feeling, just so you know, sometimes being on stage, it still feels like you're just standing there and you're just like, what if I just went crazy right now and started screaming? And then you're like, did I just do that? And they're like, no, it's all inner thought. It's fine. We're fine. We're fine. Keep going. <laughs> Thanks for that validation, Erica. I didn't know if that was just me or if that's a, or maybe it's just you and me. Your tote's normal. I think about that constantly on stage. Like I could ruin this. So could everybody else. <laughs> but maybe that's the joy of, of a rock and roll show as opposed to a, a theater piece is that in certain settings, there is no wrong. Like if you go ape shit, like, well, the drummer in pavement did that every single show. That's why they got a second drummer to actually keep time. Yeah, right. Rock and roll is very different from theater in that regard. Generally speaking, again, there's, you know, there's blurred lines in different scenarios, but for sure. From the time that uh, I came to Austin in 94, 
I was blown away at how much live music there was that on 6th Street there, like for a few blocks, every single venue seemed to have live music. A lot of them, you go upstairs, there's different live music. (laughs) It was crazy. And it was in decline from that moment on. And I think it was a nationwide thing from what I understood. And that just seemed to be advances in technology and just more things competing with going out to a bar. Looking at some articles going into today, I see that folks are rather bullish on at least the overall state of the industry of 52% of people have gone to a live show in the last year. There's more overall revenue in the live music industry than in streaming. That does not surprise me. No, that's how. Yeah. Seeing the mass concert is one of the few things, maybe political rallies is another, I don't know, community sort of events that are drawing people out, perhaps in reaction to being uh, locked up the rest of the time. Yeah, to address the streaming revenue versus live revenue, though, I think you have to look at streaming revenue versus prior revenue based on like album sales, because Mm -hmm. that used to completely trump the live experience. In fact, most label deals with major acts had nothing to do. They took no money from the live shows, no money from merchandise, none of that. They just earned all of their money from the record sales and let the artists kind of earn their money from the other part of it. When streaming came in and then record sales diminished, the labels had no more money to make on streaming. It's like fractions of the revenue. So now the labels all have what they call 360 deals where they get a piece of all of it. And they also have to participate in promoting all of it, of course. So I don't think it's necessarily that live music revenues have gone up. I think since 1989 they have, but that was because of the Rolling Stones sort of changed the industry with their Steel Wheels tour. By charging four times, how did they change the industry? I think it was Bill Graham was going to promote that tour, right? And then some, at the time, unknown came to the Stones and said, I want to promote your tour, and here's the deal. I will guarantee you $30 million in profit if you do 30 shows for me. They went to Bill, and they said, can you do that for us in 1989? And Bill said, no one can do that for you. And so they went with this other guy, signed his deal. And, of course, what he did was he looked at – how much people were actually paying to be in the building. And it used to be that every ticket cost the same. Front row, back row, they were all the same price for a concert. And what, of course, would happen is the people that were fortunate or smart enough to procure the quote-unquote good seats would then, many of them, not all, but would sell them on the secondary market through scalpers. And he said, okay, well, look, if the ticket price is 20 bucks and that person paid 400 the artist got none of that $380. I can fix that problem. And so he created a tiered pricing system and also brought in corporate sponsors and happily wrote the Stones a check for a million dollars a show because all the money was on the table. He just put it on his table instead of it being spread around on lots of different people's tables. So that did change the live music industry. You know, it didn't change anything for guys like you and me slugging it out in bars. So did that kind of tiered pricing system, did that curb scalpers? It created Ticketmaster as a scalper, that's for sure. They started partnering with scalpers in perhaps not entirely above board ways. It still exists and it existed then. It's just if the ticket price was 400 bucks and a scalper got a hold of it, now you paid 1000 for that ticket instead. Man, that's something yeah. I really wish we could change in the live music scene. I mean, my husband was just trying to buy tickets. I believe Dillinger Escape Plan was coming out with a tour in New York City. And he got on first thing trying to buy two tickets. 
and they just immediately sold out. And so one of his friends is like, oh, just get it off of a third party. And Drew's like, no, I'm not paying this other person. Like, I want to see this band. And if this band wanted to do something about it, they could. Like, several years ago, we went to see Tom Waits. And to get a ticket, you could only buy two. And you had to show your ID with the ticket when you went to the venue. So there was no way that you could actually buy the tickets in advance and sell them to somebody. Like, you had to have the idea that went with that. Right. The big asterisk there is that Ticketmaster is perhaps the worst offender in the scalping market today. I mean, StubHub is terrible, too. I just got screwed by them. So let's make equal opportunity there. This episode brought to you by StubHub and Ticketmaster. (laughs) I mean, come on. We'll decide which one we want to put in. (laughs) A lot of the people that are putting tickets on StubHub are getting them through deals that they have with Ticketmaster. So it's not so much StubHub. StubHub is just a marketplace, right? They take their fees, and we could argue about whether StubHub's 15% fees are exorbitant or not exorbitant, but the prices are set by the sellers and by the buyers. I mean, if nobody's buying, then the seller has to reduce their price, but the prices are set by the sellers. And there was a big scandal, I think it was two years ago, where it finally came out. Ticketmaster has this conference every year, and somebody brought a, like a microphone in and recorded these conversations that Ticketmaster execs were having with these scalpers that should never have even had relationships with Ticketmaster. And yet Ticketmaster was courting these people and saying, okay, yeah, look, I can guarantee you, you know, 500 tickets per show. And I'll give them to you ahead of when the on sale happens. It was wow. Like, okay, well. Ahead of the on sale. Ahead of the on sale. Yeah. So even for the Tom Waits thing, if it went through a Ticketmaster house, and many venues, most venues perhaps, are Ticketmaster slash Live Nation houses, even if they put all those protections in place, it's like, well, if the people that are putting the protections in place are the ones selling it out the back door, then the protection is just for show. Wherever the exorbitant fees come from, it's still at the place. I don't know. I don't know how to separate out whether things are too expensive from. I'm getting older and like every other older person, it's like when I was a kid, nobody ever paid more than $50 for a ticket. So there's no way I'm ever going to, you know, so that's kind of the way I feel. And there's enough shows that come through town that I can get a $20, $25 ticket and stand right in front of a band that I really like and gaze up at their, you know, look at all their guitar pedals and their set list that's on the floor. Like that's the show that I, I actually go to. Whereas anybody that's a national, uh, David Byrne, Tori Amos, other folks that have come through town, you know, maybe we'll do a family go to Milwaukee Fest or, you know, sit on a lawn 400 yards away from the band once a year. But in general, like I'm just, I'm not going to get to see McCartney. I'm not going to get to see Bob Dylan or you two because I'm just not going to pay $400 a ticket. Mark, I wonder if that's what's driving the popularity of tribute bands so much. Mm-hmm. And they really have exploded. And, you know, we've had both Elton John and an Elton John tribute band come through town. And, yeah, I can afford one of those, or I want to afford one of them. And this live experience of having someone sing in front of me, yeah, it's not the guy, but it's, it's still something. And it's a fun night out, and it's the live experience. Has anyone else been noticing more of these? Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's a huge increase in it. It's its own tier of live music experience now, right? It used to be that, oh, there's that bar band that does the Queen tribute or, or the Who tribute or whatever. And now it's like, okay, there's cover bands, there's original bands, there's tribute bands. It's its own segment of the market for sure. 
Isn't it more a historical recreation thing than, I don't know if there are a lot of tribute bands who are actively doing the same thing that the real band is doing right now, as opposed to recreating something from the 1970s, 1980s, that I wish XTC would get back together, but they're never going to do that. And they're certainly never going to tour through my town. So if there's a fucking XTC tribute band, I'm going to see that. The Fish tribute bands are doing the things that Fish Ah. is doing live. And I think that's probably true of others as well. I'm personally not that interested in seeing tribute bands, but... I would not be opposed to being in one. You know what I mean? I was going to say, isn't, like, isn't that what a musical is? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, in other words, Ham- there's the original Hamilton cast, and then Hamilton tours around and plays elsewhere with a different cast. It's sort of a tribute band. <laughs> no, I disagree on that, because unless you actually created that show, then it's not a tribute. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't... Yeah specifically made for those people like typically i mean mm-hmm. maybe in that one case it was because they all worked on it for a long time but i think that's the difference is like if you have a songwriter or somebody who's known for it they do it in their way and then the tribute band's going to do it in that same way hopefully not exactly the same thing happens in theater but like i can understand from a musician's aspect like i mean i'm part of a band and we mostly do covers we do covers in a different way we do covers in a bluegrassy way which is great. We'll do things that you may not typically think of as a bluegrass song and make it into more of a bluegrass song. But part of the reason we do that is because we wanted a lot of stuff to play and we wanted people to come see us. And people are more likely to come see you if you play songs that they're familiar with, especially if you're playing in a bar. So it's your version of an orchestra playing pops. Or like the Metallica orchestras, that kind of thing. Yeah. So a lot of it goes to what the appeal of live music would be has to do with what reasons that you're going to see live music. And that Dave mentioned just people going to get in on the party, which is something that I've never felt comfortable with. I like just don't hang around in bars just for the fun of it. And even crowded parties, like I'd rather be in a place where I can actually talk to people. You know, that's just been my personality forever. And so I have never actually seen a tribute band (laughs) live in my town. And this says something more about like that. I like the idea that there's a Talking Heads tribute band as opposed to necessarily the actual experience, because a lot of the reason that I want to see the musicians is, as Erica just said, because of their particular style and this is fading as I get older, but like there's a certain amount of awe that if, you know, you've been listening to Rush your whole life and then you finally see Rush live, then like, wow, you know, especially if you get to stand as I try to do 10 feet away from the guys, get there early, stand by the stage. But even if you're the whole lawn away, maybe you have your little uh, spy glasses, <laughs> your upper glasses, there's something awesome about that. Whereas if they've replaced 90% of the band <laughs> because it's an old band, almost none of the original members are there, or it's a tribute band, even if they're doing pretty much exactly the experience you would have gotten, like, eh. I would have agreed with you (laughs) up until about three years ago when I, for the first time, went and saw a Rush tribute band. I play the role of an extrovert very well, but I am not that person. I don't like being in bars unless I'm the one playing in the bar. I like to be able to have like my own space, all of that stuff. Yes, me too. Yeah. <laughs> and that I think that's pretty typical of most times when you go see someone on stage, that's the shyest person in the room, even though they might fool you into thinking otherwise. But I, you know, I went to this club and there was this Rush tribute band that I had heard some good things about. And of course, this was, you know, after Rush had stopped touring. So you were never going to see Rush again. And I found myself in the midst of this 
celebration of like-minded nerds. And it was one of these clubs where in order for the club to make extra money, they serve food. You go, you eat dinner, and then after you have dinner, the band comes on. So you're having dinner with people that are also like-minded fans. And so you have this conversation. And I found it to be a really enriching experience. It was like, oh, this is cool. This is exactly the same thing that would happen if I went to a Rush show. You know, you get to your seats a little bit early. You're talking with the people around you. you say, oh, when was the last time you saw Rush? You know, what's your favorite moment? Like you have this shared interest that sort of spawns nice little conversations. And and then you see a band hopefully play the music well. In this case, the band that I saw was called Lotus Land, and they are spectacularly good. So, you know, you get to see him play these songs that you will not hear Rush play again. And in many cases, you know, especially if it's an aging band, you know, Getty Lee's voice isn't what Getty Lee's voice used to be. But Chris Nelson's voice is what Getty Lee's voice used to be. So you actually get to hear these songs the way sure. you might like to hear them, as opposed to the way they would be sung if it were Rush on stage instead. Yeah, that is an interesting aspect of the replacing band members thing is... uh how the originals might not actually be able to do it anymore. And so seeing the band that's led by the original singer, but who's been smoking cigarettes for 25 years since then versus seeing, so this is a wishbone ash. This is another seventies act like that, that I interviewed uh, that the guitarist is like holding the mantle up and he has all new members. You know, there's none of the original people that were, you know, at the height of their fame in 1974, but because he's been doing it steadily, like it's a tight ship. Like it is a good, good band and they can do even those old classics very well. Whereas, so there was actually one of those things where there's legal issues between the original singer then started his own thing. And like, it's ragged. You know, I would feel some sentimental had I grown up with that band, which I didn't. I only kind of listened to them in preparation for interviewing this one of the guys. But yeah, I don't know how I'd feel about the uh, Yes with the Replacement Singer, Journey with the Replacement Singer, or Boston with the Replacement Singer. Obviously, if somebody's dead, it's a different thing. It's just, you're grateful if they can get a sound alike. But if it's like Yes, where they... The singer just doesn't want to do it. <laughs> and so they got well, a the young singer's guy. doing it in his own version of that band with Yes. And for the record, Steve Howe should never be singing anything, especially not Roundabout. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> or the Adam Lambert plus Queen, where, you know, obviously they need a new singer and Adam Lambert doesn't try to sound like Freddie Mercury, which is, I appreciate. I feel like that would have been much worse. The guy who joined Journey, isn't he supposed to be like spectacular? He sounds spectacular, yes. I don't know. Maybe it depends on how much integrity you feel like the band had in the first place. Journey, I don't know if I care, frankly, if, uh, if they have a different singer. It's not It's not like, you know, Bob Dylan's band replacing Bob Dylan with somebody. Like, it's not. That's what Neil Sean would say, right? Like, Journey started without Steve Perry and was mm. a fairly successful prog slash fusion band. And then Neil and Steve met and they wrote Lights and things sort of picked up from there in terms of their popularity. I don't know if you knew there's something called the new cars for a little while so the rundgren yes the cars my favorite band from when i was in early high school just that okay didn't want to do anything so it was the keyboardist and the guitarist with todd rundgren so it's not just like a scab <laughs> it's like a different amazing artist in his own right but who decided for whatever reason like that he wanted to sing a bunch of cars songs that was a weird one-off project 
I saw Todd, the Todd Rundgren band. Mm-hmm. He had Greg, the keyboard player Greg from Hawks, Cars, yep. and Prairie Prince on drums. And I mean, it, it was Todd's band. But they finished the show with um, Best Friends Girl or something like that. He loved singing those songs. But Todd Rundgren, he's such an anomaly because he basically got to do his own music career as his side project, at least from a revenue standpoint. He never needed to worry about making money from his own music because he had that one sweet deal with Meatloaf that paid forever, right? They approached him because they knew they needed somebody that really could produce Bad Out of Hell well. Like that album, they knew would not succeed if it wasn't produced like a theater album and and also like a rock album. And they kept going to him and they, and he was like, no, I, like, I don't have time for this. You know, you don't have enough money for me. And they didn't have enough money for him. So finally, they kept offering him more and more that they could. And finally, it was, I think, about 30 grand or something as a flat fee, plus a dollar for every record sold. And yeah, when you do the math on Bad Out of Hell, you finally realize why Todd Rundgren can be Todd Rundgren. Because he gets a dollar. Well, he used to get a dollar. About five years ago, he sold that contract to somebody else for a lump sum because he wanted to buy a really nice house in Hawaii. Uh, so he did. <laughs> but uh, but Todd lives a charmed life because of that deal. <laughs> so would that work? Is there Are there bad out of hell live theater pieces that don't have meatloaf in them? Yes. Except it got shut down last year. I think they were in Toronto and uh, it was supposed to tour. And then all of a sudden it got shut down. Some producers pulled out or something and all these people who, I mean, it was a big deal in the theater world because, you know, when you sign on for a tour for theater, you sign on for six months to a year. And there's a lot of other stuff you can't audition for or other things you might have turned down during that time for the promise of a six month to a year job. And so all of a sudden these people who were in, I think it may have been their first city on tour, all of a sudden it was like, oh, no more tour. Sorry, guys, we can't deploy any of you. I think they are doing like a few live performances in New York. I don't know for how long they're running. Yeah. So what do we think about this theater? Music theater seems to be like, you got to see it live. That's the whole point. Otherwise, why not just see a movie? Having all those people in real time. But, you know, the economics of that make it very like I had the chance to see Hamilton, but it would have been drive a few hours and pay by my old man lights (laughs) way too much. So when it became sort of an option, to see on Netflix or something, there was a live version. My daughter's getting into musical theater of the Shrek musical. Yeah. So like, wow, that actually worked really well. It was really shot. Well, I'm probably was getting a better view of things than I would had I actually been in the theater. No, you don't get that vertigo of somebody could screw up, but they're not going to screw up <laughs> in that level. <laughs> But they could still screw up, right? Like, it's live, so... And maybe that's not a good thing to have that, as Brian was saying, to actually feel nervous about that. And, you know, you can pause it and think... So, at least it seemed like, okay, it still would have been better to go out to the show and have an evening of it and have my attention forced to actually stay on the thing. Like, that's a thing... (laughs) You know, yeah, their advantage is to being able to pause and, and, uh, yeah, let's see, you know, let's just watch two songs tonight. Let's see what their advantage is to that, but it certainly is not, uh, even seeing a live band, like I was just talking to my son about this, that the fact that we had to sit through this opening band to a show that we went to, like, if I just played him recordings of that guy, eh, he wouldn't have sat around for it, but like, it forced him to actually listen to a whole set and appreciate what this guy was doing. So there are definite advantages of that. So it seems like having the recording, having some other substitute, like it's nice if you can't get the real thing. It, it enables you to increase your overall consumption of that thing. But certainly it's always going to pale to the real live experience. 
I think there's room for all of it. You know, the first time I ever saw Sweeney Todd was the one with uh, Angela Lansbury that was recorded. That I enjoyed, but when I finally saw it live in a community theater, I was mesmerized. But at least I was introduced to it some other way. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I, I, I grew up in a very small town, and you had to drive an hour away to get to the nearest live theater that wasn't my mother's community theater that she started, right? So like to actually see a show that was touring, you had to drive at least an hour. And usually those weren't even the first run tours. We got it like two, three years in. So yeah, it was awesome to be able to watch things on video. Now I would say like the thing with Hamilton, of course, we all talk about Hamilton because it's the biggest success and it's awesome. I've seen it twice at a discount both times because I'm a theater person and we don't have the money to pay full price for things. Some of the issue with like Hamilton now is that people come to New York and they see Hamilton or they see Harry Potter, both super, super high price tickets. I was hearing from people last year when I was doing Carousel, the people who'd been in the industry a long time, they were saying like people used to come and have a weekend of Broadway and they'd see three shows at expensive prices, but doable prices. Now, People can't afford to take a family to see more than one show. So if Hamilton is the big ticket item, the family goes see Hamilton, they spend all their money doing that, and they don't quite have the money they had to see anything else. So you're seeing a lot of other things close. You're seeing Broadway trying to figure out what to do. So it's become a bit more like Vegas. They're like, oh, we'll have a Donna Summers show. And we'll have, for a while, they were working on a Michael Jackson show. I don't know if that's dead in the water now. The Cher show I think they're trying to figure out what to do, how to have a life outside of these huge, huge successes. And maybe it's not in a tailspin, but to me, it seems like they're really trying to find their footing. It seems to me, Erica, to build on that, that back in the day, shows would sell out. And yeah, there were some ticket brokers, but you would take it to be the truth that, well, there aren't tickets, so let's go see something else. Whereas now, with all the different ways of getting tickets, Hamilton's never actually sold out, right with the secondary market. You'll get tickets if you want them. You may have to pay and pay and pay and go higher and higher, but there's always a market window of someone who's willing to sell and and you're going to buy, and that's how it is. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting, that phenomenon. It doesn't surprise me at all. I was just looking at a parallel. It's outside of live music, but you know there used to be movies that succeeded because they opened the same day as a blockbuster, and people would go to the theater, and they couldn't get into the new Batman movie, so they'd go see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and that's how that movie made some money. Now you just buy your ticket online, and if you can't get in, you go to the next one, and there is no overflow anymore, right? Just the way things work now have changed some of the ecosystem of how money gets made, especially for secondary-type productions. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, if I can't buy it in advance and I can't secure it, then I'm not going to go out. I'm going to stay at home. What you would hope is those people who don't end up going to New York City for the weekend and they stay in their suburb, that they would then say, like, you know what? I'm still going to go out, and I'm going to go see a live band that's not famous, like just a local live band. I don't know that we see a lot of overlap in those things, and I really wish we did. That's a hard sell for people. You know, the couch has gotten really comfortable in the last couple of decades. We have good sound at home. We have big, big screens at home. You can have a very immersive experience in your living room or what feels like an immersive experience in your living room. And it's a very comfortable immersive experience because you can do it in your underwear and you can pee like whenever you want. Like Mark (laughs) said, you can pause it if you want food. There's no bathroom lines or if there are, there are people you know really well. (laughs) It's hard to get people off the couch, for sure. And Mark, you mentioned the decline in audiences for live music starting in the you know late 80s, early 90s. I think it actually started before that. It started when the drinking age changed from 18 to 21. 
and really limited the crowd of people that can come and see live music. But I think there's hope. And you might all think I'm crazy, but that's okay. No, give us some hope. We want to hear it. We'll, right. we'll have a so, vote afterwards. Okay, perfect. So I think alcohol and live music are absolutely the wrong combination because most people, when they have alcohol, want to like tell a story and talk. It's a very social, interactive thing. And, and you go to shows, especially shows where there's a lot of drinking – and it's not rare to have someone within earshot feeling like, oh, something just dawned on me. And it this right now, while that band is over there playing, whatever they're doing, I have to tell my friend this very important story that I just remembered. And they go and prattle on when really they should get a podcast to prattle on later. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the <laughs> social acceptance and continually increasing legality of cannabis will potentially change the live music scene in a huge way. I live right next door to the state of Maine where cannabis has essentially been legal for decades. Like they just don't care. They did make it recreationally legal recently. They haven't figured out how to sell it yet. I think they were one of the first states to have it medicinally legal and they, they just don't care in Maine. And I played this gig and we started with some credence song and suddenly within about the first five bars I noticed the dance floor is full of guys. I'm like, this isn't a gay bar. So this is weird because <laughs> normally it takes like a mix of genders before dancing happens. And generally it's not the guys that start it. So this is abnormal. What's going on here? Like, oh, wait a minute. They're all really, really high. I really think that as venues, whatever, that allow cannabis. Now, the whole smoking thing and the smell of it, like that's a problem we need to figure out and solve. And I've seen this at several gigs. In fact, one of the bands I play in is a like a function slash wedding band. And so we wind up playing some pretty highbrow exclusive venues. And there's this one also in Maine. They do a monthly party there. They go and have dinner at their clubhouse. And then the band plays. For the first three songs, it was dead. Like dance floor was empty. And I was like, oh my God, I'm glad we already got paid. And then everybody left. Everybody went outside. And the smell wafting in from outside made me feel like I was at a fish show or in a Cheech and Chong movie. And then these people came back in and just raged all night long. It didn't matter how old they were. It didn't matter. Like this place was just full. They were having a blast. And they were really, really into the music. Hmm. And so I think there's hope. I don't necessarily want to encourage everybody There's to, hope develop in drugs. A, to develop a drug <laughs> habit. Yeah, exactly. But the reality is live music is tied with drugs. Like alcohol is the one that is sold now, but live music and drugs at some level go hand in hand. I mean, bars are the venue where most original and cover bands get their start. And you are a beer salesperson when you are on stage. That is what you are doing. I don't actually like to take any drugs on stage, but the people out in the audience, I would much prefer them to be on cannabis than alcohol if they have to choose one. Oh, well, yeah. It makes for a less rowdy crowd for sure. Yeah. They're just into it. You know, they want to dance. They want to get into yeah, the music. Maybe, maybe you're right, especially with all the legal, especially like medical marijuana happening. You know, that's even going to happen in Missouri soon. And so who knows? Maybe that will make a change. Hmm. Yeah. So Erica, do you want the audience for Annie Get Your Gun to be high? Would that help? I bet they laugh a lot more, man. Sometimes it's like, what are you doing? Are you, do you just want to go home? <laughs> That's how I feel sometimes about audience members, not even just here, but anywhere. Like when you see people don't realize it doesn't matter to me so much if I'm on a stage in a band, but if I'm on a stage in a theater and everything's dark and people have their phones up and their faces are lit up, they somehow think that you can't see it. But you can see their face because they've just lit up the whole thing. 
I'm like, well, then what are you doing here? What are you doing? So that's not the kind of lit up you want them to be. <laughs> that is I want not people it. who listen to our podcast to get baked first. I think that would be great. One of the things that's supposed to be good about going to the live event is the community. And Dave mentioned particular events. If you're seeing a Rush show, you know, it's a self-selective group. <laughs> I like to go to these uh, Rift Tracks live things. So it's the people who did Mystery Science Theater have continued under the name Rift Tracks. And they do, we haven't talked about this variation of direct broadcast to movie theaters. So you could see live opera as it's happening in New York City, presumably, or London or something, beamed to the various theaters around the country. Mystery Science Theater fans are, again, a self-selective group. So I like going and laughing with those people, even though, of course, the people who are broadcasting it from Nashville can't hear us. But it does, does have that thing like, this is happening right now. There are mistakes. But in general, what do you feel about, like, I recall going to a big stadium Pink Floyd show and like... I hate all the people around me. I really wish I was not seeing this with these people or whether they choose to smoke and get smoke in my face or not smoke, whether they're dancing at me. There's so many shows where I have to maintain a solid. I, I went to one with my son and like, we're seeing Weezer in the middle of a big club. Like, okay, this is where we're standing. You've got to hold your ground. You've got to be big. You've got to hold your arms out because otherwise the mosh is going to gradually squish in on you. So by the time the three opening bands are done that we've been standing up continuously for four hours, you're going to be a squished little, per- <laughs> you know, is it just really dependent on, on the type of show or in general? Like, yes, it's good to see things with other people or eh, no, I'd rather <laughs> not do that. For me, it depends on the thing. So like if I were going to go see an opera live at a movie theater, I think that would have great appeal because so often when I go to see opera, I have to sit in the back, right? And so I can't really see their faces anyway. So yeah, there is great appeal for me to sit and be like, wow, I can actually see. And there's an experience where like, if it's the Met, maybe I can't afford a ticket to the Met, but I can afford a ticket to a movie theater to watch something that's broadcast live. But for me, if it's like a concert experience, I'm just not as interested in that. Maybe maybe it's just because I haven't experienced it yet, but I'd rather just go to the concert or not. Put in some earplugs and like hang out by the wall if I have to. I do want that experience of being around other people in the concert. I've actually experienced this from both sides. I've certainly gone to see concerts that are being performed live somewhere else in a movie theater. Like you said, it's a different experience. I actually like to hear the way the band sounds in the venue. Like there's something special about that. And you totally, you know, you hear the way that band sounds in a movie theater when you're doing that. And you you don't really get the venue or you get somebody else controlling the blend of venue to lines and that sort of thing. But, it, you know, it can allow you to see something that's happening thousands of miles away without having to travel thousands of miles. And you get to go sleep in your own bed and you probably get to have a comfortable chair, far more comfortable than you'd get at some arena or whatever. On the flip side of it, We used to do this big party at Macworld Expo every year that we called Cirque to Mac. We had formed a band to play at these things. And the party grew, and it was a nice little branding opportunity for us, but it was also kind of a nice thing to have the community together. For two, the last two years of it, we streamed it live. Somebody came to us and said, I want to stream your party. And we're like, I guess, whatever, sure. Set up your cameras, do whatever you want. And it turned out that about 10,000 people watched it. It was like, okay, well, this is pretty cool. Like, they didn't get to be here at the party, but they got to see the band. And what I didn't even think about is, you know, there was like a chat room connected to the video stream. And a lot of these people were watching at home. So they had like their own experience separately together 
that was just theirs. And that was kind of cool because there's a big part of live music where you hand your art. This was just cover songs. So, you know, art, but you hand that off to your fans and then they need to be able to make it theirs. Right. Whatever is happening, the relationship can't always involve you as the performer. It needs to be something that they take as their own in some way. And that just sort of naturally happened with this chat room. So there are things that can happen that would not happen in an arena or in a you know stadium. I love that aspect. I hadn't thought of that either, but that's true. Even at like a Facebook Live, somebody live streaming a concert and, you know, friends from all over the place who might know each other from childhood being like, hey, you're watching this. I'm watching this too. Isn't this great? I've had some of those experiences and that's really neat to see that you can affect people somewhere else, even if they're not paying for it. Because right. Ultimately, we just want to share the music. We have to get paid for it at a certain point or else we can't continue to do it. But it's more about being able to share it. There was a show, a TV show in 1990 called Cop Rock. And it was a drama musical from Stephen Bochco, who had done Hill Street Blues and some other things. And it totally bombed. People hated it. It was like partly a cop show and partly like they'd break out in song and it would be a thing. And no one could understand why it failed so bad. And they finally did some forensics on the show and realized that the focus groups all watched this as a group together. And they were watching like a musical and they were all getting into it as a group. And people in their own homes didn't get that experience and they ended up really disliking it. So having a group to watch it with, I, I guess, was part of the secret sauce for that show to succeed and ultimately why it failed when it got to the TV stage. So I don't know if that's slightly apocryphal or totally true, but there's certainly a a truthiness to that story. And, and I, I totally see how that's possible. Something I just keep thinking back to is like how the venue can really have an effect. Years ago, I was obsessed with Damien Rice. This is back when O came out. My husband and I, who was my boyfriend at the time, we were in college. So we were all up for like driving across state lines to go see this guy. And we saw him in Nashville and it was probably the best live music experience of our lives. And this includes all sorts of types of music. But we ended up at Nashville in this beautiful old, I can't remember which venue it was now, but we were sitting in this theater in seats. Nobody said a thing. And we all just listened. And it was beautiful. And it ended and we didn't even talk. We were just like overwhelmed. Then we saw the exact same show a few weeks later at a bar. And I have never been so annoyed at a live show in my life because people were drunk and singing along to everything. And he was still trying to give the nice, quiet, intimate show and it just didn't work at all. So yes, sometimes sitting in a room with people, if they're like-minded, if you're lucky enough to be in the same mindset, I think it's amazing. But if you're off kilter with the room around you, it doesn't always work so well. I got to confess something this makes me think of that at certain shows, when I'm five feet from the, the band, depending on what the show is, I love singing harmony just in general in bands. And yeah. so I will sing harmony with the singer on, you know, I'm watching Neil Finn or something. And maybe there are even harmonies that are on the record that are not happening in the room right now because it's a solo show, you know, because things are arranged differently. And I will sing harmony and I will try to sing it in a way that they can actually hear me. <laughs> but I will try very carefully to just direct it because yes. I'm a little embarrassed about it and I don't want... <laughs> not, like, not embarrassed enough, evidently. <laughs> but I don't want the audience members to like know that I'm doing that. 
<laughs> is your dream that they'll hear you singing this harmony and they'll be like, that guy, get him Come up, up here, stage. sing this next song with us. <laughs> I used to have that dream too. No, no, no. I, I will totally sing it. Certain live shows, I will certainly sing. Yeah. Oh, same. Because yeah. you're like, I'm in tune, man. I sound good with you. <laughs> If I sucked, if I was a drunk person singing along drunkenly, I wouldn't do it. But this is just helping. This is just something they forgot to include in the show that I'm helpfully adding. Thank goodness Mark was here tonight. That's right. <laughs> no, I do. I totally do the same thing. Yeah. You know, once a singer, always a singer. And it just, it feels so good. Like, you feel like you're having this... It's part of that just being awestruck. And this is why I'm saying that I would be awestruck seeing Rush as opposed to a Rush tribute band. And it really just it comes down to who exactly whether I have developed a personal relationship with this artist or something. I've been raised on recordings, recordings that you can listen to over and over and over and over again. And you can come back to and you can kind of even just have on the background and then some moment will suck you in. And you can just let it creep up on you. Whereas in a live setting, it's just totally different that you have to be giving it hopefully your full attention and you have to get yourself in the mood for it right then. And there've been shows, even with bands that I like that I go to that. It's just like, I'm kind of not in the mood for this, you know, after a half hour, like that's enough. And so much of it, I think I've just gotten desensitized as I've gotten older. That uh, it's because you weren't smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> but that you know, the first time Brian and I went to Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe, the yes, almost yes show in 1989. That was like probably for both of us one of our first big concerts. We were sitting very far away, but just the fact for me, you know, that I've been listening to this record and like that guy that I was listening to, he's right there. <laughs> Like, that was an amazing thing. And now I don't feel that as keenly now. I've seen enough shows. <laughs> Getting a little jaded. Back to your comment about singing along. Have you ever played Rock Band, the video game on your TV yes. kind of thing? It never appealed to me, but I know, yeah. What you were describing is what Rock Band does for everyone, musicians and non-musicians included. It allows you to connect with music in a very visceral way. And I think what you're describing at those shows, I mean, sure, some of it is, wow, I'm singing along with Neil Finn and he's right there, you know, like that's cool. But also it's, I really like this song and I want to blur the line between myself and the music. And the one way to do that is to actually be singing the music or playing the music. And that's part of what happens in cover bands. Sometimes you have those songs you're like, oh, I really like playing this song. And of course, you have to be careful when you're in a cover band. That if the point of playing covers, like you said, Erica, is to bring people out, well, you probably need to play songs that people have heard, right. you know, not your favorites. But, yeah. it, it, you know, but there is something to that where it enhances the experience because it makes it more immersive. Because, again, that line between you and not you is blurred when you're doing that. Yeah, I love it. I mean, that's why I love karaoke for the same reason. It's just so much fun to just get up and act like a star. And for me, like, yes, my job is to perform, but when I do karaoke, I sing songs that I would never be able to sing on stage, right? I want to sing something that maybe I'm not known for or not very good at, because who cares when you're in a room with your friends and you're just supposed to be having a good time? And I think some friends get intimidated when they do karaoke with singers. And I'm like, no, that's the point of it is just like, we all get to try something that we've never done and we can make a mess of it and it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That's right. Yep. Live band karaoke is a thing. It's even cooler. I haven't done yeah. that. That makes me nervous. I feel like then I have to really perform. I didn't actually do it. There's a band here called the Gomers that for years and years and years did this thing where they would just, they had an obscenely large catalog and they would just run a weekly 
karaoke thing of like maybe email us beforehand so we can like tell you if we actually can play that. But yeah, it's a, it's I a want wonderful you to idea. do it and record it for us. Thanks so much for doing this, Dave. Uh, any final thoughts from folks before we wrap up? Go see live music. You might find you like it. So I, I should say before we go, so I ordered a VR headset for my phone to try out, like, what is the state of the art in concert going experiences? And I tried this. It's Melody VR is the app, one of the apps that I tried. And I bought a Who concert for 12 bucks, and it gives you four different camera angles that you can choose from, and you can stand in that spot that they were, and you can look all around you. You can spend the whole time looking at some dude in the audience next to you if you want. But one of them is right at Roger Daltrey's feet and you're gazing up. The resolution is not awesome. So like, I can't see what the bass player is doing. One of the cameras is right behind the drummer. So I could like watch the drummer the entire time. The sound is pretty darn good. Like if they could just up the quality a little bit, I definitely see again, not as good as going to the show, but like, even if I went to that show, I would still like to relive it this way on the stage. Cause I'm sure I would have been way that. In fact, one of the camera angles you can pick is way the hell in the back. And why would you do that? Like the resolution is not good enough <laughs> for you to see. So you remember where you truly belong in life. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you want to see the lights. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So this is definitely the future. My daughter raised that. Like, wouldn't you want to bring one of these cameras to the show and then later stand next to yourself? <laughs> So you could watch yourself watching the show. (laughs) Or what would you do if you were the one sort of running the camera for this kind of event? Like, I would definitely stand behind the thing and just mug constantly. Maybe have a puppet. (laughs) So they could watch the band or they could turn around (laughs) and watch me do the puppet. I was worried we wouldn't go off the rails, but mission accomplished. Yep, yep. We're going to talk a little bit more. So, folks, if you want to go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop, you can hear a little more. But uh, we're going to sign off here. Thanks so much. So long. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.